0: Well, when do you worship? Have you thought about that? When does that take place in your life? Is it only at prescribed times? Is it only when you're intentional about doing it? Or can you subconsciously do it? How about where? Where do you worship? Is it only in prescribed places? Only in centers of religious life? or? Can we find ourselves worshiping wherever we happen to be? Can it happen anywhere? Actually, importantly, does it happen everywhere? And most importantly, who do you worship? Is it one God? Or is there a whole pantheon of those who receive your devotion and your adoration and your trust? And, And how? are they described? Those that receive praise from you, how are they described? Are they they described by you? Do you get to fit their, their characteristics and their character? Is it described by them? Is it by someone or something else? Well, how we answer these questions and ones like it shape every aspect of our lives. And I want us to turn now to Isaiah 40. A passage filled with questions that are meant to teach us the answers to these very questions. If you would, turn with me there in your Bibles, Isaiah chapter 40. If you're using the pew Bible in front of you, you can find our text on page 600. And I'm going to start reading for us in verse 12, and I'm going to read all the way down through verse 26. And then I'll try to help us figure out where this fits in the Bible. The nations are like a drop from a bucket, and are accounted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. To whom then will you liken God, or what likeness compare with him? To whom then will you compare me, that I should be like him, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes on high and see, who created these? He who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might, and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. Amen. Well, if you're just joining us, We're in week two of a three-week series in Isaiah 40. Now, Isaiah was an ancient prophet and writing to the people of Israel in some of the final generations before they were sent off into exile. And this book has three main movements. So the first movement is in chapters 1 through 39, where Isaiah is speaking to his contemporaries. He's warning them of exile, and he's promising them rescue. And then the final section is 56 through 66 and there god is speaking to all of his people which includes converts from among the nations and he's telling them that there's a coming messiah and they need to prepare for themselves that section is addressed to all god's people at all times our chapter here 40 is the beginning of the center section the middle section chapters 40 through 55 and in this middle section Isaiah is speaking to the events and to the people that are gonna come 150 years after him. He's speaking to people returning from captivity, from Babylon, and they're broken people. They've been stranded from their homeland and they feel abandoned by their God. But in these 16 chapters, God will explain that he hasn't forgotten them. That he not only orchestrated their exile, just as he told them that he would, but he has also orchestrated their return and that he has moved the heart of kings to prepare a way for them to come back to him. And most importantly, in this middle section of the book, God reveals that in the same way he choreographed their physical rescue from Babylon, he will also arrange their spiritual rescue from sin and from death by sending his suffering servant as an atoning sacrifice. This is a marvelous book, and we get to spend three weeks in a marvelous chapter here in the middle of it. And so chapter 40 kicks off with comfort for these people. He offers comfort because these people, we find out in verse 27, are afraid that God has forgotten them, that he's disregarded their way. And so God speaks to them great comfort. And that comfort is not in platitudes or pick-me-ups. It's in himself. He offers himself. And with that comes his pardon, a pardon that can only come from his hand. And he depicts himself as a victorious king in in verse 3 and a mighty whirlwind in verse 6 and a strong and gentle shepherd in verse 9. And, and those illustrations that we looked at last week, well, those are, those are kind condesc- condescensions. God is, is speaking down to us. He's getting down on our level so that we can understand, so we can grasp in some small measure these glorious attributes and actions of God. But this week, we're reminded that even those divinely provided images don't sum up perfectly all that there is to God. No image is perfect. And actually, if we're not careful, we might twist even the images that he gives us, and I might be misleading in how we are to picture him. Because the point of Isaiah 40, 12 through 26, is simple. Yahweh, the creator, is incomparable. Yahweh, the covenant-keeping God of Abraham, Moses, and David, he is the creator of all the universe, and he's incomparable in his wisdom, his knowledge, his justice, his understanding, his self-sufficiency, his worthiness, his eternality, his authority, his holiness, his power, and his strength, just to name a few from our passage. Yahweh, the creator, is incomparable. Now, for those of you with maybe uh, Oklahoma and Arkansas a- uh, accent and uh, and maybe educational background like myself, you might be thinking, now how do I spell incomparable? And it's spelled incomparable. But I've been told that it's incomparable. So I'll try to get that right today. Yahweh, the Creator, is incomparable. And as you can see, our passage uses rhetorical questions to great effect not only to memorably make the point that Yahweh the Creator is incomparable, but the way they're used symmetrically in the text gives structure to the text. So he uses some of them to teach theology proper, and then he follows up with other questions that drive home the application of that theology. So look down at your Bibles. Notice that the question in verse 18 To whom then will you liken God, or what likeness compare with him? It's nearly identical to the question across the page in verse 25. To whom then will you compare me, that I should be like him, says the Holy One. So this helps us mark off that there are two segments in the passage. And that repeated question is at the heart, at the center of both of those segments. And in each segment, what Isaiah is going to do is he's going to lift our eyes to behold the creator, and then he's going to use that pivotal question to change what we look to for comfort. So he's going to lift our eyes, and he's going to change our sight. So in section 1, verses 12 through 20, he lifts our eyes by declaring, behold your creator, wise and worthy. And then... He changes our sight by saying, So don't look to creation to find comfort. Behold your creator, wise and worthy. So don't look to creation to find comfort. And then the second section is verses 21 through 26. And there he declares, Behold your creator, sovereign and strong. So look through creation to find the comforter. Behold your creator, sovereign and strong. So look through creation to find the comforter. I'll try to remind you of those things as we move through the text. But let's start right there at the beginning. Behold the creator, wise and worthy of worship. I'll read again for us, verses 12 through 14. I love the use of these rhetorical questions. These, remember, are the kinds of questions that don't seek information, they convey information. So the answer isn't meant to be unknown. Instead, it's meant to be really clear. So God uses a similar effect when he talks to Job in Job chapters 38 through 41. But let's be specific. What's the answer to these questions? Well, in this section... The answer is the same to each part. Who is capable of measuring out all the building blocks of the universe and fitting them together in his perfect design? No one but Yahweh the Creator himself. Who is capable? Who who can measure him or direct him or give him advice? No one but Yahweh the Creator himself. Who taught him truth, justice, righteousness, understanding? No one but Yahweh, the creator himself. Behold, the incomparable creator. He is beyond description. The creator is is so matchless that even these divinely inspired analogies are just poetic attempts to teach us simple-minded humans about the creator God. Isaiah uses a kind of anthropomorphic language here that portrays God with human physical features that he, he doesn't actually possess. So, so, God is spirit, and as such, he doesn't have physical hands. And yet, poetically, they paint a picture that conveys the point. Each description on its own is wondrous. Did you see? For, like, the, with the water. All the turbulent, chaotic waters of the world with its crushing depths and its lashing rains, they, they aren't enough to warrant him even picking up a teacup to scoop them all up. He just holds them in the hollow of his hand. And, and the heavens, the starry host, the total expanse of space, all 93 billion light years of space, he doesn't even need to pull out a measuring tape to measure it. He just reaches out, and with a span from the end of his thumb to the end of his pinky, he can measure the entire universe. Like a baker who who sets aside all of his ingredients in exact proportions, so Yahweh, the Creator, pulls together just the right quantities of dust and mountains and hills. And then, by stacking all of these illustrations together, we see that everything in all creation is under his control. From the seas to the stars to the earth, from the tiny dust to the giant mountains, all of it, all creation, in totality, it is his. And in his wisdom, he has designed, built, and sustained all of it by the word of his mouth and the direction of his mighty will. Genesis 1-1 tells us, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And he did so without anyone's help. For there is no God but Yahweh. He's not the first among many. He's the only. And just as he stands outside of creation, able to measure all of it, it's clear that no one stands outside of him, able to measure him. Because if they could... They might have some power or direction or influence or control over him. But that's not the case. God is completely independent from all else. Nothing in all creation is independent. We all need something. Oxygen or water. We need DNA from our parents. We we can't exist without them. Even the the heavenly hosts, the stars, they, they need hydrogen and fusion And everything in creation has a cause. Trace it back as far as you like. And everything in creation came from something. But where did creation come from? Eventually, as you trace it back, you're really only left with three options. Either creation created itself, or creation is eternal, or creation was created by something eternal. Those are your only three options. Logically, the first, it has some problems because for something to create itself, it would have to be before it was. It it would have to be and not be at the same time and in the same relationship, which violates a fundamental principle of truth and science, the law of non-contradiction. So if creation can't create itself, then that leaves us with only the two eternal options. Either creation itself is eternal or it was created by something eternal. And the evidence continues to mount scientifically against creation itself being eternal. First, the better we get at physics and more astronomical data we collect, the more the math seems to point to the beginning of the universe. And even if you're gonna argue about Collapsing and expanding universes or, or, or multiverses, you're still dependent on a lot of high-end probabilities. And second, the mounting evidence continues to show that the universe, both in its largest aspects and its smallest components, are all intricate, more intricate than we even knew before. And so the arguments for a designer are, are there. For anyone to see who, who's willing to grapple with the, the moral ramifications of an eternal creator. And Isaiah 40 presents that the God of the Bible, Yahweh, is that self-existent eternal creator. Nothing caused or created him. He did not create himself. He is eternal. He has always existed. He has the power of being within himself. He exists in and of himself. That's what theologians call the aseity of God. God is completely self-sufficient. He gains nothing and loses nothing because he needs nothing. This wasn't so with the Babylonian gods, the, the people who had captured the people of Israel. In the Babylonian mythology, Marduk, the creator, he had to go and consult Ea, The all wise one, so that Marduk would be able to create. He had to go find other members of the pantheon so he could build out certain parts. And not so with Yahweh. Yahweh is the source of all the physical world and all the moral universe. Our passage tells us here that that he is wisdom itself, he is knowledge, he is truth, he is understanding. Justice and righteousness, they find their source in Him, in the eternal, incomparable God. And we, as humans, as creatures, as creations, we add nothing to Him. He didn't consult us, nor should He. Compared to Him, according to verse 15, we're a drop from the bucket. And what we know and what we are comforted by is that the God who can hold all the waters of the universe in his hand can handle one more little drop from our bucket. We are dust on the scales, it says. We don't tip the scales. We are negligible. And compared to him, verse 17, we are as nothing. Even in our collective strength as nations, we are accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. Yahweh, the creator, is incomparable. And as such, he is worthy of worship. He is deserving of all that creation can give. Actually, he is so worthy of worship that no human religious effort could suffice. Look down at verse 16. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor its beasts enough for a burnt offering, So Lebanon is often pictured in scripture as kind of the the pinnacle of post-Eden beauty on earth. Lebanon has these high mountains that come up from the sea. It has uh, these enormous forests that were filled with cedars of high regard. It was filled with animals. And it's as if Isaiah is, is standing down in Israel and looking up at the mountains of Lebanon, and he's thinking, and if those mountains were an altar and every one of those trees was cut down and stacked on top as a pyre and every animal in those forests was slaughtered and put up as a sacrifice, it wouldn't be enough. That offering of immeasurable wealth wouldn't even come close to honoring God in the fullness of the way in which he deserves to be worshiped. For Yahweh the Creator is worthy of it all and more. And the only pleasing sacrifice would have to come from His hand and not our hand. Because what we'll see in our next section is that all we can offer is it's pretty pitiful. Because we have this tendency to worship and to make idols. So, after giving us this lesson in theology, verses 12. Through 17, he's then going to apply this theology to our lives. He's going to bring about that application. And the application, remember, is so, after you have beheld the Creator wise and worthy, don't look to creation to find comfort. Don't look to creation to find comfort. Follow along as I read, starting in verse 18. To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness compare with him? An idol? A craftsman casts it, and a goldsmith overlays it with gold and casts for it silver chains. He who is too impoverished for an offering chooses wood that will not rot. He seeks out a skillful craftsman to set up an idol that will not move. Isaiah asks, To whom will you compare the incomparable? How will you attempt to describe the indescribable. How are you tempted to visualize the invisible? An idol, he says. Are you, are you kidding? An idol? The sarcasm here is laid on thick. Like, if there was ever a moment that the, uh, the printers of the ESV wanted to insert, like, a, an eye roll emoji, right after idol would be the right spot. The, the idol is a terrible object of worship. First of all, it's made. And it's not, it's not the eternal, wise creator of all things. And it's not even made by the eternal, wise creator of all things. It's made by a mere human. I mean, sure, it's a skilled human, but a human nonetheless. A, a human marked by weakness. And sure... That human is imitating his creator in some pretty beautiful ways. But in those ways, he's ultimately mocking his creator. Paul writes about this same paradox in Romans chapter 1. Picking up in verse 18, he says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and righteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them. they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their heart to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. We can tell ourselves that idol worship is its a thing of the past, or it's something that's only found in exotic, far-off cultures. But just because many of you have never bowed down to a statue and asked it for help, doesn't mean you haven't fashioned gods to worship. Our idols may have less gold and silver, they may be less visible to the rest of the world, but they are no less real. Because idolatry is when we worship, when we give allegiance, when we offer dependence or honor that should only go to God, should only go to the Trinity, and instead we give it to one of his creatures, or even worse, to a creature created by a creature. It's found in pagan temples. Idolatry is found in centers of commerce. It's found in the halls of education and government. It's found in our homes. It can even be here in this service. And the reason it can be found wherever we go, because we carry it in our hearts. Now, your idols of choice could be a celebrity or a sports team, an experience with a loved one, maybe words from a mentor, or, or the feeling of inebriation or elation. Maybe it's achieving a particular body type or, or looking like a certain age bracket. Maybe it's just health in general or, or future possibilities or past perspectives. It, it could be one of a million things. It could be a million things in your life. These are all things that occupy our time and attention. They become the source of our identity and they become the source of our satisfaction And while they have incredible influence on us, our text wants us to see that the foolishness of idolatry is that we have so much influence on them. We craft them, we adorn them, we move them around, we set them up, and then we bow down to them. So Isaiah is going to go on about the foolishness of idolatry in a couple other places in the following chapters in particular in Isaiah 44, 9 through 20, which you can read later, he's going to extend this same illustration that we see in these three verses. There, the the smelter who overlays things with gold and silver, well, he passes out from heat stroke in the forge because he doesn't eat or drink. And the carpenter who cuts down the wood that won't rot in our passage, well, in that one, he takes half the tree And he chops it up into firewood and he uses it to cook a meal for himself. And then he takes the other half of the tree and he fashions it into an idol. And then he gets up off of the stump of the tree he just knocked down so that he can bow down to the idol he just stood up. We craft our own idols, you see, in no small part because we hope to control them as much as we hope to be benefited by them. And that's primarily because we are our own chief idol. We worship ourselves. We put ourselves at the center of the universe. And we envision that all of the cosmos is revolving around us. Our comfort, our adoration, our fame occupies the vast majority of our sinful thoughts and efforts. And, and the most insidious, the most diabolical form of this idolatry is how we seek to shape the God of the universe into our image. An image we prefer. An image that doesn't reflect how God has revealed himself in his word, but one that suits our personal needs, our personal desires. So for instance, maybe in our version of God, we we want him to be omniscient, but, but not too omniscient. We like that he knows when we're in trouble so he can come and help, but we don't like that he knows about our sins and the ways in which we we treacherously attempt to overthrow his rule in our life. Maybe in our version we want him to be holy, but not too holy. Just holy enough that he himself doesn't sin, but not so holy that he doesn't tolerate our sin. We want him to be just, but not too just. As long as he's defending us against our enemies, that's great. But as soon as he starts to treat us as the enemy we are to him in our sin, we cry foul. We want him to be sovereign. We want him to to move mountains to answer our prayers. But only as long as he submits to our sovereignty when we tell him when and how and why to do it. This is utter foolishness. And the point of this part of the text is to command us to stop looking to something that you fashion to find your comfort. If you want the comfort promised back in verse 1, it won't come from an idol. It won't come from a creature. It won't come from a God you have fashioned into your own likeness. These are all idols. And and they, they violate the first two of the Ten Commandments that you shall have no other gods before me and you don't make yourself for yourself an idol. But Isaiah knows that we want to treat God in this way. And so once again, in verse 21, he's going to again lift our eyes. He's going to draw our eyes back up and he's going to say, behold the creator, this time sovereign and strong. So this is the second half of the text. Behold the creator, sovereign and strong. Look with me at verse 21. Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in, who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth, as emptiness the scriptures won't let us craft god into our image they have from the very beginning depicted god as holy he is he's set apart from creation he transcends and yet he interacts with his creation he rules over it from his sovereign throne remember again genesis 1:1 in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. He was the one, external to all creation, enthroned above it, who spoke all of it into existence. He set the foundations of the earth. He made sure that it was steady and that it would continue and that it would last. In contrast, we just learned that we can barely make an idol not topple over. Kind of like the the Philistine god, Dagon. Dagon but he has set the foundations of the earth. Yahweh, the creator, he's incomparable, and he sits enthroned above the universe, and we, in comparison, are just grasshoppers. We're we're mindless munchers, constantly devouring and not saving up for winter, not knowing that disaster is headed our way. And in contrast, the Lord of the universe, he orchestrates everything. Just in verses, just like in verses 3 through 8 that we saw last week, God here is depicted as a king and as a whirlwind. His, his majesty and his might coupled together. He rules over the rulers, causing all those who, in this case, rulers is someone who's literally weighed down with titles. So someone who walks around with all the, the badges on their chest, who's weighed down with all those medals, God makes them as nothing, emptiness. They have no weight. They might seem like they have lasting power. They might seem like they have strength. But scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth when he blows on them and they wither and the tempest carries them off like stubble. Xi Ping might think he's solidified power over China, but he's merely chaff, waiting to be blown away. Putin might think his armies give him power, but he will one day wither and be forgotten. Elon Musk, with his thousands of satellites, might think he's shaping the future for all of humanity, but he's emptiness compared against the eternal one the one who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and who calls each star out by name. That is true strength. And it only belongs to the creator, Yahweh. We we can fashion uh, gods out of gold and silver and they can reflect some light. The God of the universe creates the stars that shine true light. This is sobering. We are put in our place when we lift our eyes and we behold the creator God. But I don't think the point for it is to be demoralizing. Actually, I think while it's humbling, it's also meant to be deeply encouraging. Because Yahweh, the incomparable creator of the universe, he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. And in his strength, he still lovingly condescends to care for us. Look how he treats the stars. He, he calls them each by name. He draws them out. And because of his strength and his power, not one is missing. He's like the shepherd who brought out his flock from last week. The one who uses his mighty arm to sweep away the enemies and that same arm to draw in the lambs close to his chest. This is the God of the universe, and this very one is the one who loved us enough to send his one and only Son to be the payment for sin, because we saw that nothing we could do in all of our effort would ever suffice to worship God and to atone for sin. But God, being rich in mercy, And knowing our frailty and knowing our need and knowing how we have rebelled against him and how treacherous and mortal the sin is of idolatry that is so deep in our hearts, he has sent his son to save us. That is our greatest gift. The pardon we receive, the comfort we receive comes in Christ. And if you've never trusted in Christ, I hope today what you see in this passage is you have trusted in little, tiny things. You have trusted in yourself. You have trusted in nations. You have trusted in science. You have trusted in the universe, and it's not enough. Only if you will trust in this creator and in the provision he has given in his son can you be saved. If you will turn and trust in him, he will draw you to himself, and you will spend eternity with this creator. He desires for all to be saved. Would you now turn and trust in him? And brother and sister in Christ, would you look to this savior for comfort? Look to him, look to his strong arm, look to his sovereignty, look to his worthiness, look to his wisdom. Don't look at creation. Don't look down at creation as your place of worship. But what does it say in verse 26? Lift up your eyes on high and see. Who created these? Who created this starry host? Yes, look up at creation. Look up at all that God has put before us. But don't look to creation for comfort. Look through that creation to find the comforter. Look through it to find this Holy One. Because nothing compares with him. Actually, that he titles himself here in verse 25, the Holy One, is kind of the, the, the end-all, be-all. He, he, there, there is nothing left to compare with him. He is the Holy. He is the set-apart. He is the, the sanctified, the holy, the different, the other. He is the Holy One. He is moral perfection. And we are to look through creation and by his grace, we can find him. We can find this holy one. Herman Bovnik said it this way. The world is good because it answers to the purpose he has set for it. It's neither the best nor the worst, but it's good because God called it so. It is good because it is serviceable. Not to the individual human being, but to the revelation of God's perfections. And to the person who regards it so, it is also good because it makes known to him the God to whom to, makes known to him the God whom to know is eternal life. Creation is good because it services us. It serves us in a way to point us to the one in whom we can find eternal life. And so, be diligent to look through creation. Maybe that means that you need to take some time and, and, and spend some time out under the stars soon to take this literally, to lift up your eyes and see creation and know that the one who calls them out one by one calls us to himself. The one who calls out the mighty stars is also the one who calls the sparrows and doesn't lose a single one. He's that kind of shepherd to know that strength and to be comforted by it. And not only to do that with just the stars, but to do that with all things in creation. I'm really grateful for Jennifer Gidden, who's done a a wonderful job of modeling that for us at Vacation Bible School over the last couple years. If you had the chance to sit in on one of her little presentations, you've been encouraged to hear the gospel by looking through the the wonders of scientific discovery and, and, and of the physical world. Even tonight, with the kids that come to vacation Bible school after they finish their crafts, Jennifer will help them see that God is one who intricately designs things with a a paper balloon. She'll demonstrate with a paper balloon. And through that picture of that paper balloon, our children will see that there is a creator God. And we pray that our children will trust in that creator God to save them. But not just that. Not just those kind of images, but all things. Don't look just for knowledge in and of itself. Don't don't let that be the end to which you look. Knowledge puffs up. But look through that theology. Look through that knowledge and on to the creator God. The Israelites were were tempted to think that their, their difficult circumstances were the ones that were speaking truth to them. And here... They are called to look through those difficult circumstances to their comforter, the one who's over all things and through all things and in all things. Even just as a small way, everything that we do here in this service is not meant to be ultimate in and of itself, but it's meant to point us to this creator. And so we don't, we don't worship the songs that we sing because we love the style or we, or we love the, the order of things or, or, or how, they was all, how the service was all fit together. No, we sing those songs because they point us to the Creator. This sermon is not meant for you to remember to me or, or, or a turn of phrase. Prayerfully, you have been, by my direction, pointed to the one whose word is eternal, that always endures. Here in just a few moments, we'll take the Lord's Supper And in the Lord's Supper, we have been given by God elements that are not to be worshipped in and of themselves, but that point us to the great sacrifice of Christ and to the hope that one day we will share a great meal with him in the Supper of the Lamb. We are constantly surrounded by things in creation that don't point to themselves, and they don't point to us. But they do point to the all-sufficient incomparable creator of the universe in him we have our life and move and we have our being in him we have all that we need he is worthy of our worship he is worthy of our devotion in every corner of life everywhere we go consciously and subconsciously we are to be orienting ourselves to worship this creator because as we sang earlier he is worthy Let me pray for us.